Episode 3, The Law of the Wilderness, Part 1. The backcountry is rough. No boat nor canoe can stem its brawling waters. No bicycle nor automobile can enter it. No coach can endure its roads. All about me was the forest primeval, where roamed the wild beasts. Bears sometimes raided the fields, and wild cats were a common nuisance. But the beast I had just seen, my God, was being hunted. Hunted not only by a band of bloodthirsty fugitives, but also by a monster most foul. And to make matters worse, I was separated from my best friend, my companion, Glenn Catchowl, who himself was somewhere in this godforsaken wilderness, bleeding to death. His only hope for survival, and perhaps mine as well, was the favor of the mercurial U.S. Marshal, our snake-stick man, who I had now come to fear may be more dangerous than all these mountain men and monsters combined. I found myself in the back of the beyond and could see no way out of it. This is Moonshine Land, a story of haunted Appalachia. Based on Horace Kephart's true account of moonshine, murder, and mountain mayhem, our Southern Highlanders, and Madeline Vinton Dahlgren's classic description of the Appalachian occult, South Mountain Magic, Moonshine Land is the story of my attempt to discover the truth behind a Prohibition-era manhunt for a fugitive moonshiner. But instead of uncovering the story of a human criminal, I found evidence of an ancient Appalachian evil that has been hiding in the hills for centuries. And this ancient evil was not happy to have been disturbed. Listen on if you dare. Chapter 5. The Back of Beyond. I watched the great beast tear into those rugged mountain outlaws with such ferocious malice, I almost felt sorry for them, even though they had just moments before tried to kill me and my companions. I looked around me again. I was sure. Catch and the snake stick man had disappeared. As to where, I had no clue. My attention once again turned to the violent scene unfolding before my eyes. I expected to feel horror, but was surprised when a wholly different emotion washed over me. Many say they find faith through some warm interaction with the congregation, or when a feeling of love overwhelms them at the sight of their newborn child. But, to my great surprise, Salvation was not offered to me in that manner at all. I did not find it. Rather, it found me in the bloody carcasses of a mountain holocaust. As I watched the black dog of South Mountain, the wolf man of Appalachia, work its blood-soaked jaws against the flesh of screaming men, I knew God must exist. What else could be powerful enough to create a monster so terrible? Enough, I thought to myself. If I am to survive this, I must slip away before either the lumberman or the monster discover me. I was desperate to find Ketch and to somehow save his life. No man loved his family as much as Ketch loved his wife and son, and I felt a guilt unimaginable as I slipped over the edge of the shale outcropping I had been hiding behind and dropped to the creek bank below. The searing pain that coursed up my leg as I landed almost blinded me and stopped my breath in my throat. I covered my mouth and stifled my screams so as not to draw attention to myself. Reluctantly, I looked down and discovered that I too had been wounded in the firefight. A load of buckshot had torn my flesh and broken my right leg. Somehow I had not realized I was wounded until just now, 
the adrenaline that coursed through my veins as I dragged Catch out of camp while firing back at the lumberman must have masked the pain. That mask had fallen away now and was replaced with agony I cannot adequately convey. I will say this. If the horror of the wolfman had not convinced me there was an opposite to the Almighty, this pain in my broken and bleeding leg may very well have done the trick. I took my knife from my belt, cut a strip of cloth out of my overcoat, and fashioned a crude tourniquet and splint from a stray stick. This was a slow and difficult procedure. Pulsing pain washed over me as I grappled with my broken bone and the ripped skin it had penetrated. Waves of nausea threatened to knock me unconscious. The blood on my hands ruined my grip, and the bit of overcoat I had cut slipped through my shaking fingers as I tied knots. Finally, after several tries, the splint was made and attached. I could not walk, that was for sure. So I tossed anything I felt I could get by without to lighten my load and started crawling. I kept a six-shooter in my holster, a few cartridges in my pocket, and the knife tucked into my belt. I hoped, but did not believe, these items would be enough to sustain me. The sounds of murder from Beardell's camp had faded and were replaced by the eerie quiet of the mountains. The dribble of the half-frozen creek and the shuffling of the winter-brown leaves that still clung to branches in the cold Appalachian wind did little to mask my grunts as I dragged my body across the mountainside. I was so loud as to make myself a target, and I knew it. That fact was made all too obvious when I heard the footsteps. I stopped moving, afraid even to breathe. And there it was, in the trees in front of me, crouched on all fours now, not standing like before. It was perhaps more frightening. Perhaps not. It is difficult to quantify fear. In any case, it slinked over to me the way a wolf does as it approaches for the kill. I felt its hot breath on my skin. The metallic bite of blood and death covered the beast's clothes and hair. I tasted its warmth in my mouth. So close it was, on me like a murderous lover. I closed my eyes and waited. Hot blood breath wheezed in my ear. I waited for its great maw to close over my neck, but it did not. Instead, the beast spoke. Help, help, it said. Help you, I gasped, unable to disguise my shock. Help, it growled again. Very well, I sputtered. What would you have me do? Let him die. Let him die, it said. I was so shocked by the monster's statement I turned around to look at the beast. My terror be damned. But when I opened my eyes, the wolfman was gone. I lay on the cold ground and wept silently for a good long while before continuing my slow crawl across the mountain. It was strange, I thought as I shivered in the cold. I felt in a hurry. Night was closing in and the temperature was dropping, but I did not know where I was crawling to. I only knew that I must go on, even if that meant simply to die in motion. That was better than sitting still to wait. I did not make good time or distance, so great was my pain in debilitating my injuries, both physical and mental. The low, deep growling of the wolfman echoed in my mind with every miserable inch of frozen ground I drug myself over. 
Help. What did it mean? This agent of death, this unholy beast covered in the blood and entrails of human men, asking me for help? And why had it spared me when it had so recently, only moments before, ended the lives of so many others? And if the black dog wanted something dead, why not just kill it itself? Soon the sun fell below the mountaintop and it was dark. Not long after, the temperature became unbearable. My thoughts turned from the pain in my leg of the gunshot wound and the pain in my arms of dragging myself across a shaly mountain ground to the dull ache of cold. I could go no further. I lay on the ground and thought first of my death. Then, as I weakened, of catching his family. Where was my friend? Had he died already? No. In my heart of hearts, somehow I knew he was still with us, and I rallied my body for one last try. If Catch was still alive, I must survive and try to find him. I would find him. So I took three deep breaths, raised my head, and tried to move once more. But my injured leg had become tangled in a berry vine, and when I dragged myself forward, the pain from the sudden jerk backwards on my broken femur knocked me clean out. I lay unconscious on the mountainside, nearer to death than I'd ever been. Chapter 6 The Granny Woman I woke with a start and blinked to clear my blurred vision. As the sleep fell from my eyes, I could see I was in a small cabin. Well, more a lean-to or shack than true cabin. It was dark and cramped, but thank the Lord it was warm. A fire crackled in a primitive hearth, and a diminutive figure was crouched over a pot that bubbled and boiled. She, for I could just tell it was a woman under that dirty, ragged calico, was stirring whatever it was in the old black pot slowly and mumbling to herself. I could not make out what she was saying, but the rhythm and meter of the sound suggested, to my ears anyway, a prayer or a spell. I tried to lift my head and speak but she must have heard me because before I opened my mouth she raised her hand without looking away from her cookpot and spoke. Don't move ye none, she rasped. Hits a bad break have you in yon leg and black poison in your blood. She spoke with the strongest affectations of mountain speech that I had yet come across in my time in the Appalachians and her gravely voice struck fear into my heart so harsh was its timber. She turned to face me an earthenware bowl of that bubbling brew in her hand. Her hair was white and her face was a sun-baked brown even this late in the year, a testament to the time an isolated mountain woman spends outdoors in her quest to survive. She stood up and moved toward me. Her spine was crooked from years of back-breaking labor and her gait uneven, but her eyes shone bright blue. They were the only part of her that seemed younger than the mountain on which she made her home. I had been told stories about women like this, the one in whose home I now was a guest. There is a term for these aged mountain women who live in even more isolated lives than the rest of their Appalachian kin. Wise and experienced, these granny women, as they are called, know all the secrets a mountaineer needs to survive. They can cure sick livestock, assist a woman in a difficult birth, and concoct all manner of healing potions. They also, generally, have a deep knowledge of the black arts, so it is wise to keep them a friend and never make of one an enemy. 
and so this granny woman kneeled before me and wordlessly offered a drink of that potion she had been stirring when I first awoke. I could not help myself. I hesitated. My stalling was met with a stern glare. Drink you, she commanded. So I did. You may wonder what the drink tasted of, but in truth I cannot tell you. I have no memory of the taste, only that it was warm. How did I come to be in your home, ma'am? I asked after swallowing her brew. She said nothing, only stood up, limped back to her chair by the fire, and sat. I noticed now that there was some type of small animal roasting on a spit above the flames. The granny woman began turning the spit, roasting whatever it was with the kind of patience only the elderly possess. What have you given me to drink? I continued. She said nothing, kept turning her spit, and pointed commandingly at the bowl I held in my hands. I nodded and took another sip of the draft. For your own leg it is, she said. Have you up and about by daybreak? I looked down at my injured appendage. The granny woman had wrapped it in a poultice and must have set the bone while I was yet unconscious. I was impressed with her skill, but did not believe I would be on my feet any time soon. Ought call you Thomas the way you doubt, she said, turning the spit and seeming to read my thoughts. But what is your given name, son? Horace, I told her. And while I do doubt I will walk in the morning, I sincerely hope to be incorrect. Now tell me, how did I come to be here in your home? Again, the granny woman seemed to ignore my question. She cut off a piece of the roasted animal and brought it to me on a tin plate. Ain't much, she croaked, but I'll share with ye what I do have. It was not until she set the food before me that I realized how hungry I had become. I tucked into the meal and was surprised at how good it tasted. I felt better with food in my stomach, and the ache in my leg was less severe than before. As I ate, I managed to ask the granny woman about Catch. I told her about the shootout at Bearedale's camp, Catch's injury, and that I was looking for him in the snake stick man. I did not mention the black dog of South Mountain. I felt that broaching the subject of the wolf man may have been too much even for this mountain mystic, so I left it out. But had she seen Catch? Heard or seen anything that might help me find my friend before it was too late? The granny woman's gaze dropped to the dirt floor and she shook her head. Truly, you do not recall, do you? She asked. How you come to be here, in my home? I shook my head. No. I've a few things to tell you, Horace. I do not know yet that you are ready to hear them. Her voice, so strong before was little more than a whisper now. Fearing the worst about Catch, I implored the granny woman to tell me what had become of my friend. At last she acquiesced. She turned to me and placed her hands in her lap, clasping her fingers together and nodding her head. It were the black dog what brought you here to me, Horace. What? I exclaimed. The wolf man of Appalachia? Brought me here? Yes. Cradled in his arms, she said her face solemn and drawn. And after he dropped you here, he took me to a cave across yon holler and made me listen to what was happening inside. Two men in there it was, and what I heard between them I must tell you now. That is, if and you are ready to hear it. I told her that I was ready and desperate for any news of my friend. Very well, she sighed. I wish it were different, but the news I have for you, it ain't good. And now, dear reader, 
I will relate to you what the old granny woman told me she saw and heard while she eavesdropped at the mouth of the cave across the holler. Chapter 7. A Devil's Bargain The cave was made of limestone. A great dark hole carved into the side of the ancient mountain by the persistent, unyielding action of billions of drops of water over millions of years. Even now, water yet trickled down the side of the limestone, taking tiny bits of the mountain with each drop. She saw him, our friend Ketch, inside that mountain's maw, laying against the old cave's wall. Blood from his wound was pooling below him and mixing with the drops of water, staining the bedrock floor. The snake-stick man stood next to him, keeping vigil, leaning against that sinister, serpentine walking stick of his. He carried a lantern to light the dark, and it cast black, dancing shadows. But, the granny woman told me, the snake-stick man's shadow did not appear in the same shape as he did. As the lantern's flame flickered, the dark outline behind him was not of a duster coat and cowboy hat. Instead, a sinewy body crowned with a set of black horns danced across the cave wall behind our snake-stick man, and the serpent at the head of his walking stick, while in reality made of carved wood, had a shadow that curled and hissed as a live snake would, even as the wood rod remained stone still in his hand. Wait, Catch, she heard the snake-stick man command. We have something to discuss. Catch opened his eyes, somehow roused from the torpor of imminent death, and looked around at the cave first with confusion, then anger. He managed a question. Why are we in this cave? The snake stick man stood and pointed at the cave wall with his walking stick, the shadow of the snake's tongue tasting the dark subterranean air. To be closer to where I come from. At this moment, the granny woman said Catch tried to stand, but lost his footing in the muck of his own blood and fell backwards, landing in a painful slump upon the ancient stone, unable to escape. The snake stick man casually ignored this attempt to flee and spoke once more. These mountains are old, Catch, the snake stick man continued, the first to reach their peaks up toward the sky, but they are the most worn down, and their caverns and caves reach deep into the earth. And once this water, this cool water that takes a stone and turns it to emptiness one tiny drop at a time, once it digs deep enough. At this point, the granny woman said the snake stick man paused his speech, knelt down next to Ketch, and pressed his hand deep into Ketch's wound. Once deep enough, I can dig myself out and become free. The sound poor Ketch made, the wail of unspeakable agony, as the snake-stick man fingered wrapped around his innards, was more than the granny woman could bear to describe. Instead, she told me this. I never wish to hear such again, as many or as few days as I still have left on this earth. The granny woman told me this as well. When the snake-stick man knelt down to hurt poor Catch, his shadow did not. Instead, the shadow of a horned beast with a real serpent in his hand stayed upright on the cave wall and it danced. After what seemed an eternity of pain, the snake-stick man released his grip on Catch's intestines and stood. His shadow remained detached from him and started to creep, slowly, toward the mouth of the cave. Catch did his damnedest to catch his breath and subsequently asked the snake-stick man a question that had been on both our minds for some time. What are you? 
the snake stick man looked Catch in the eye and smiled. White men call me old Scratch, or demon, or devil. Your people, the Cherokee, might say I am the one dressed in stone. They are all equally close to the truth, and equally far from it. Catch stared back at the snake stick man with a boldness that surprised the eavesdropping granny woman and answered the snake stick man thusly. I do not believe in any of that. The snake stick man smiled again, the grimace that parted his lips even more forbidding than before, and laughed. His horned shadow, now several feet away from him, creeping toward the mouth of the cave, threw its head back in a silent, mocking cackle. Oh, my dear catch, the snake stick man's voice was smooth like oil. It matters not if you believe, because, as you can see, whether you be my servant and full of faith, or a skeptic full of doubt, it makes no difference. I yet exist. The snake stick man launched himself down again and kneeled at Catch's side. He cradled Catch's head in his hands and pulled his face close. Do you wish to see your family again? The snake stick man asked. Do you? It was at this moment that the poor old granny woman realized the disembodied shadow had crept upon her and was staring at her with missing eyes, hidden behind a darkness too deep to describe. She was so afraid she was unable to move, even to fall to her knees and weep, though her legs shook like leaves in a windstorm. The shadow turned its horned head and held a hand to its gaping black maw as if to shout, but no sound could be heard except by the snake-stick man who turned his head and answered the apparition's call. Yes, he hissed. I know she is there. It is as I wish it to be. I need the granny woman to see. Catch, growing weaker by the second, tried with all his might to escape the snake-stick man's clutches, but to no avail. Finally, he managed a reply. If I die, I die. My family knows I love them. There is no unfinished business between us, only love for my wife and love for my son. Nothing has been left undone, nothing left unsaid. The snake stick man's face became uncharacteristically red with emotion and he fairly spat his answer. Lies, he cried. What about your little girl? Ketch began to weep at the sudden flood of memories the mention of his stillborn daughter brought back to him. His pain made the snake-stick man smile and caused the shadow to toss its horns back in a silent peal of horrible, inaudible laughter. Yes, yes, the snake-stick man growled. This is why you followed me into the wilderness. This is why you agreed to come. No, no, Catch gasped. The money. I need the bail money. The reward for Buck's capture. The snake-stick man shook his head. You lie, Catch, he purred. I know why you came. You saw what I did for the dead mountain rattler, and you think I can do the same for the dead infant girl that lays buried in your wife's garden beneath the gnarled branches of a dogwood tree. The snake stick man threw down his staff, and as it hit the cave floor, it again transformed into a real, live serpent. It hissed and spat as it coiled itself around the bleeding and immobile Catch, the horned shadow began to dance an ancient dance and wail soundlessly on the cave wall, clapping its black hands in silent, satanic delight. 
Do you not understand, Catch? Cooed the snake stick man. It is within your power to save yourself. You may stand up and walk out of this cave if you wish. You may walk this earth all the rest of your natural days, hand in hand with your wife and son. No, you lie, Catch spat. The shadow stopped its dance long enough to shake its horned crown, no, and wag a finger with petulant dissatisfaction at Catch's prostinations before returning to its bizarre gyrations. There is only a small price you must pay for the privilege of my miracles, the snake stick man continued. He turned and sat down next to Catch, cradled Catch's head in his lap, and stroked Catch's face with a loving tenderness. Only a small price. A gift in return, you might say. The shadow turned and kneeled beside Catch. It reached out its arms and pulled them back over and over in a universal gesture for give to me, give to me, give to me. The snake stick man's staff had crawled halfway up Catch's body now, and its tongue flickered near Catch's face. What? Catch gasped. What is your price? What do you need to let me live and bring my daughter back? Two things you must know, the snake stick man mused, still stroking Catch's face as his snake staff hissed and his shadow danced. First, while your daughter will live again, you will never know her. Never? Catch asked. No, never, the snake stick man answered. It must be enough to know that she will be born again to a different woman and man than you and your wife. But she will exist and live and learn and love and breathe the air and swim the water and walk the face of this earth. That I swear to you. But you will never meet her, nor touch her, nor call out to her by her name as long as you yet live. Catch looked down at the hissing snake on his chest, then up at the snake stick man who was still caressing his pallid cheek. What is the second part? The other half of your price. The snake stick man sighed and looked deep into Catch's eyes. You will be mine, willingly and without hesitation. When I ask and how I ask, there are those who have made this promise to me and subsequently changed their minds. You must understand, there are consequences for such an action. Catch lifted his hand in pantomime, smoking a cigarette. The snake stick man nodded, reached into Catch's pocket, and retrieved his tobacco and rolling papers. I had believed, the snake stick man said as he opened the tobacco pouch and spilled some of the noxious weed onto the small square of paper he held between his fingers, that you only smoke when you are afraid. Are you now afraid? Catch looked at the serpent on his chest, the devilish shadow on the cave wall, then back at the snake stick man. He nodded. Shitless. It is only natural, Catch, to be afraid, the snake stick man soothed. But I must say, you are facing this all with the greatest sense of calm I have yet witnessed. And I must tell you, I have been through many of these. Thanks, I guess, Catch grunted. The snake stick man smiled. He rolled the tobacco up and held the cigarette to the mouth of his dancing shadow. 
The shadow leaned down and blew upon the end, which, to catch in the granny woman's great surprise, caught fire and glowed. The snake stick man offered the now lit cigarette to catch, who took it between his lips and inhaled deeply. Just then, Catch began to cough and wheeze. Blood dribbled down from his now colorless lips. The horned shadow stopped its dance and pointed to Catch's chest with animated concern. Yes, yes, I see, the snake stick man answered. The blood is in his lungs now. There is not much time. You hear me, Catch? Soon you will be beyond my ability to save. What is your decision? Die? or see your family again and give your daughter new life. The granny woman told me Catch remained silent, but that she could see the pain in his eyes as he felt his life slipping away. He tortured himself, she said, seesawing between his desire to see his family again and his firm belief that this was all a wild hallucination, only granted legitimacy by his oxygen-deprived brain. No, she wished to cry out. Don't you give the devil your soul but she was unable to speak or even to move. Some evil kept her pinned to the ground, trapped at the mouth of the limestone cave and forced to bear unwilling witness. Finally, as the life slipped from his eyes and the cigarette from his lips, she heard Catch whisper. The granny woman said Catch spoke words to the snake stick man with his dying breath, but he was so weak, his speech so hushed, that she could not make out and therefore could not tell me what it was he had said. Chapter 8. A Dark Sunrise It is only a town-dreamed allegory that represents nature as a fond mother suckling her young upon her breast. Those who have lived close to wild nature know her for a tyrant, void of pity and of mercy for whom nothing can be wrung without toil and the risk of death. As I lay there on the floor of the granny woman's cabin, I was struck at the truth of nature's cruelty. This evil, this snake-stick man, is of the earth and therefore of nature. And whatever gifts he offers, whatever miracles he provides, they come at a cost disproportional to the greatness of his deed. So for catch... The mortal life of his daughter would cost him the immortal soul he does not even believe he possesses. The granny woman was still seated in front of me, stirring the pot in the hearth. She had stopped speaking and her face was like stone. The cook fire cast her shadow against the log wall of the cabin, and it grew and shrank with the flicker of the flames. Is that all? I cried. What else can you tell me of my friend? Did he agree? Has he sold his soul? She did not answer, only shook her head. Oh God, I moaned. It is my fault. He never would have left on this God-forsaken manhunt if I had not encouraged it. I sat there, unconsolable, thinking of Catch's poor wife and son, and of Catch. Had he sold his soul? It was unspeakable to imagine and I was lost in dread when a sound in the dark valley below roused me. Wait, I said, my mind suddenly ablaze with questions. You said the wolfman brought me here, and then he brought you to this cave? The granny woman's hands clasped each other in a state of nervous fidgeting, but her face remained as placid as ever, 
A small nod was her only answer. And this is the same Wolfman, the same black dog of South Mountain that attacked the outlaws at Baradell's camp when they began to shoot at us? Again, the granny woman nodded, then tried to change the subject. How is your leg, Horace? I gave it a wiggle and was surprised to discover that it felt nearly well. But I pushed that thought from my mind and concentrated on the question at hand. Much better, thank you. But why did the wolfman defend us? And how do you know him? Suddenly, what must be the truth occurred to me, but I could not believe it possible. So I continued with a barely contained excitement tempered with fear. What is your name, madam? I asked. She declined to answer. Please, I said, you must tell me your name. The granny woman's hands held each other so tightly now that her knuckles had turned white, but she still would not answer. So I did. You are Meemaw Ruff, aren't you? Buck's grandmother. You see, I had heard tell that the old matriarch of the Buck clan did live on her own in a shack in the Sugarlands, and that she was an honest and true granny woman, the mountain people's name for a white witch. Again, the granny woman nodded. Buck is the son of my son, yes, she said. And he got himself in a spot of trouble with your snake stick man years ago. And he took from him his soul the same way he took it off in your friend, Catch. And my boy, my Buck, he was cursed to walk this earth when the night is dark as the black dog, as the wolfman of Appalachia. My lord, woman, I gasped. This is how he escaped from his prison cell. No man with ordinary strength could have done what he did. Tore that iron bed frame apart and knocked a hole in a sturdy brick wall. Yes, yes, it be true what you're saying, Horace. The granny woman nodded, but looked increasingly uncomfortable. Tell me, Horace, think you are now able to stand on that leg? I put a little weight on my injured leg and was once more shocked to realize that the potion the granny woman had given me seemed to have worked. There was almost no pain now. But again, I pushed that thought from my mind and continued my questioning. And that is how Buck escaped detection all those weeks in the hills, with all those marshals after him, and the dead bloodhounds. That was him? Yes, but Horace, listen to me. Then why was the snake stick man searching for him? And why did we go on this journey? Wait, the wolf man, it asked me for help. Does it need my help to escape the snake stick man? It was at this point the granny woman's patience with me gave way. Damn you, you chatty son of a bitch, she roared. Listen to me, Horace. You can disobey your scratch up to a point. Just so much. That's why my buck run off from him, and that's why snake sticks was a searching after him. But you can disobey only to a point. And when the snake stick man was in danger, when them lumbermen was a-firing on you, that's when my buck could ignore the call no longer and had to help your snake-stick man. It was a lot for me to take in, and I was momentarily rendered uncharacteristically silent. But I noticed a change in the granny woman. The old woman's eyes were darting back and forth now, fear visible in them for the first time. What? I asked. What is wrong? You can trick him. That's how it's done, Horace. That's how you help my buck and save your friend. It was getting light outside, but it stayed dark in the windowless cabin. 
the only illumination inside the structure being a soft glow emanating from the embers of the cook fire. I looked out the doorway and noticed a white circle of ashes surrounding the cabin. The granny woman's eyes followed my gaze out the doorway. Only until sunrise. Then it don't work no more, she rasped. What will no longer work? Yonder circle of ashes. What all keeps a devil from here? From me? The granny woman looked me straight in the eye. Tricks, Horace. Remember that. It's the only way. I was about to ask her what she meant when I noticed something strange. The sun was creeping above the trees now, but as I said, the cabin was still dark as pitch, and the cook fire cast the granny woman's shadow against the far log wall. Except it was her shadow no longer. A horned beast appeared in her shadow's place and lunged at me. Get you away, Horace, the granny woman cried. I leapt to my feet, grateful for my magically healed leg. Two shadowy hands came at me from the darkness. I dodged them and sprang for the cabin door. Once outside, I could see the horned shadow turn its ire on the granny woman. Her screams overwhelmed my senses as I watched the shadow grab her and pull her out of sight. Then her screaming stopped. The eerie mountain silence was more disquieting than the granny woman's death wail had been. I felt an unease deep in my gut, a primal fear, the sort of animal instinct that warns prey of the presence of its predator. This is it, I thought, the law of the wilderness. Eat or be eaten, take or be taken. I knew in my bones I was in great danger, so I resolved to flee. But I did not have time to go anywhere, because as I spun around and turned heel to run, there he was, standing right behind me. Horus, the snakestick man whispered in the misty gray dawn, I have been looking for you. I knew I should feel terror as his hands clasped my shoulder in an iron grip, but I did not. I felt nothing. Come. The snakestick man offered, his serpentine staff of hand-carved wood in one palm, my arm in the other. You must be hungry. Let us go eat. As the snakestick man led me deeper into these Appalachian hills, deeper than any man with good sense would ever willingly go, I knew I should have felt fear. But as I said, I did not. Instead, I was empty. And do you know why, dear reader? Because in that moment, I realized I had no earthly idea what to do. My mind was blank. I thought back on the stories and legends I'd spent so many cold mountain nights reading by candlelight and could think of none that would help me. I was at a total loss. I did not know what to do. For perhaps the first time in my life, I did not have a plan. I could see no way forward. So I prayed and hoped I would discover one and have the chance to enact it before my soul, as well as the soul of my dear friend Ketch, was forfeit to this evil, this devil, this snakestick man. But I must confess, I was in no way confident I would find a way to succeed. I came to realize as I walked beside the snakestick man that morning that I was damned.
next time on Moonshine Land. Thunder and rain pounded the bookshop. I looked through the window. Outside, I could see the water rising again. Catch and I were about to embark on the very same business adventure that had drawn the law down on Buck Ruff. We were to become moonshiners. I closed the book and turned to face the bookseller who still stood behind me. Is that it? Is that all there is? What happened to them? 